It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This week on Underdogs, we've got heartbreak and inspiration. Which two teams will fall just short in their dream of a Super Bowl? Which MLB legends got ripped off again in Hall of Fame voting? How do Bills fans make it through the day anymore? And how TCU women's basketball has become the most exciting underdog in the country. The cry goes up both far and near for underdog, underdog. Countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! George, the dream is alive. Underdog. And I guess there's only one thing left to do. Win the whole fucking thing. It's the Underdogs. We're back with you. It's conference championship game week. I'm Jordan Brenner, joined as always by my co-host, Peter Keating. What's up, Peter? Jordan, how's it going? This is the season of the dog. Well, we've got a lot of dogs packed into this show. There's many seasons kind of overlapping right now. Yeah, that's right. We're going to look at some overdogs who turned into underdogs when it came to MLB Hall of Fame voting and got snubbed. We're going to talk about perhaps... The most painful franchise to be a fan of in the NFL and the most painful losses. That's right. We're going to run down the worst losses in Bill's history. I'm sorry, Bill's fans. And then if you're listening on the podcast or watching on YouTube, we've got a special segment on a college basketball, women's college basketball team. That is the definition of an underdog that you all should be rooting for. But first, Peter. We're adopting our first dog of 2024, right? In that final segment. So be sure to, to catch that if you can. 100%. But first, let's dig in to the most relevant topic in sports right now, the conference championship games. You've got the Chiefs going to the Ravens. The Ravens are three and a half point favorites right now. Again, Patrick Mahomes as an underdog on the road, second week in a row. What do we think of that? And then the Lions, the true underdog of the weekend, biting kneecaps and taking names, going to San Francisco. They're, They're a seven point underdog. So, Pete, let's start with the Lions because they're the true underdog of the weekend. Do we think they have a chance to go into San Francisco and win outright? I think there's a better chance they're going to go into San Francisco and smoked. San Francisco looked terrible last week because they were playing from behind, right? But by the time you got up and had breakfast this morning, Detroit had already given up 400 yards. So I'm not sure San Francisco is going to be playing from behind. I think they're going to get to run the game that they want, play the game that they want. Um, Here's what's really disturbing if you're rooting for Detroit as an underdog. They've relied on big plays, well-timed plays, execution in the red zone, all kinds of surprise and small sample size goodness. When you're relying on clutchiness at this time of year, which is not sustainable and not predictable, you're usually in big trouble. Well, I'm going to push you on that. What do you mean they've relied on clutchiness more than other teams? What What have the Lions done that's been fluky or lucky? If anything, they're an aggressive team. They go for it on fourth down a lot. What, they do. They do. But their what's third and clutch down, about that team? The thir- third and fourth down conversion rate has been really high, and they've been relying a lot on bomb passes against teams that bomb passes. Pro- they work the pro- underneath more than anyone else. They they. Amon Ross St. Lo- Brown is a low average depth of target guy. I 
I completely disagree on what on what the focus of their offense is. They don't. They're not throwing fifty yard shots left and right to. You know, They've to had a really high yards per attempt against Dallas and Green Bay, whose two secondaries are suspect. And I think it's just not going to be able to. Do you think they're going to be able to sustain? You think you think you're going to sustain that level of passing competence against the Niners? Well, so I think it comes down to two things, right? First of all, and, we and know— And do you think the Niners will be so behind at any point in this game that they will look as discombobulated as they did against well, the Packers? Right. The question is whether the Lions have it in and they jumped out to a lead to begin with. So, look, we know the Jared Goff situation, that he's a much better quarterback at home indoors. So the question is, will he turn into bad Jared Goff outdoors against a good defense? I don't know. History says not to trust him in this spot— the thing that that I'm fascinated by is Detroit's for as meh as their defense is on the whole, they stopped the run. They've done that all year. It's what they decided. Look, we're going to be good at one thing. We're going to no one's going to run on us, and then we'll just see if we can live with giving up 300 passing yards a game. It's worked lately. So, so much of what San Francisco does is based off a remarkably efficient running game and then play action off it. So this is full-on strength versus strength. So the question is to me, if they're able to shut down Christian McCaffrey, how badly does Brock Purdy shred them? That's, that's going to decide this game. Don't you think that anytime you're in a position of saying, oh, we'll give up 300 yards and see how bad it gets, you're, you're in trouble against San Francisco? Yes. Their defense, look, their secondary isn't good enough to be like, we're going to conventionally shut teams down. They have a weakness. There's no doubt about that. I also wonder, I'm, I'm wondering a little bit about the Niners' defense just after watching Green Bay yeah. largely torch them. They, this defense may be a little overrated. They're, may, they're not on the level of the Ravens' defense right now. I think we have to admit that. And I'm wondering, again, if the Lions have it in them to match them score for score in this game. I ultimately don't. I've been saying the Niners are the best team in football all year. I... I I would struggle to take the Lions plus seven, let alone straight up in this game. But I'm just trying to create a scenario where a couple interesting things happen and they're a viable dog on the road here. Well, it's the scenario, I think, is that, Green, that, that San Francisco is actually as weak as they've looked defending the run the last five or six weeks. And if Detroit sustains drives on the ground, which I'm usually not, you know— Okay, I mean, they're going to have to be able to run the ball as effectively as other teams have against the Niners, and the Niners are not going to be able to not show up in order to match them score for score. And if that happens, then we have a real game on our hands. Well, the other factor we have—oh, sorry. But I was just going to say, I think last week, you know, we cited statistics last week about teams— that were overwhelming or big time home favorites in the divisional round after losing in week 18 against teams that hadn't made the playoffs the previous year. Mm-hmm. That's the scenario. The the the, the Packers Niners scenario was the Niners was the scenario for the Niners to have an off day, look rusty, and they did, and they almost lost. I don't think that those stats hold as you get deeper into the playoffs. So the other thing we didn't even mention is Debo Samuel's status, right? I, I have yeah. to think if he doesn't play. That's a hit. You're suddenly relying on Juwan Jennings in a much bigger role, maybe Ronnie Bell. You can focus more on Ayuk or Kittle. So, you know, we, we don't we don't know what's going to happen with Debo at this point, but that's something to think about, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, they're favorites for a reason. Is all I do. You think there's actually value in the money line here? I mean, you think there's a, you mean, you think there's chance, there's a better chance versus the odds that, that all this stuff that we're talking about goes right and Detroit just pops out and wins the game, you know, do you think there's value there? I don't, 
It's, it's Because I think the most likely scenario is kind of a depressing grinding away of the lion's dreams. You know what I'm saying? And I, I but but we'll know if that if Detroit actually functions on offense, matches them drive for drive, we'll know that's not happening. But I, I just have that sense that that's what's the most likely of the of the outcomes. Yeah, I, it's a good point. You know, I will say in both of these games, um, the sharp money seems to be on the favorite. Um, the Lions, yeah. well, the the Niners are are only getting 52% of the tickets, but 71% of the money. Yep. And uh, yep. in the Ravens-Chiefs game, it's a basically a 50-50 split on the spread, but um, the Ravens are getting uh, 66% of the money. So let's jump into that one. I I bet it right away when it was a three-point spread. Three and a half to me is a huge difference. But um, I guess we can say never count Patrick Mahomes out in any game, but it really does feel like the Ravens are... are are a better team. I know you've been banging that drum all season, right? <laughs> I usually think that the words complimentary football are so annoying. It's not a, you know, you don't have a defensive lineman, you know, getting a sack and then turning around and playing quarterback. I've never understood what that term means, but if anybody embodies it, it's this Ravens style of play where they just don't let you score. And then they go out and score and they just keep doing that until the game is over. Right. I mean, the, the, the impressive results being generated by the Ravens' style of play. I mean, you know, we, we've gone over how they lead the league in sacks and takeaways and don't allow, you know, allow the fewest points. But Jordan, um, 19% of their plays over the last month have been in the red zone. Um, that's a really high number. And Kansas City is allowing 17% of plays in the red zone. I mean, the Ravens are taking it to the opponent's side of the field. One of the ways they're doing that is they've been 64% conversion rate on third and short. I mean, they're sustaining drives. You know, they have multiple ways to do that. And then they they just clamp down. And I, I don't think playing them is going to be anything like playing Buffalo that who had like what? No, a decimated five, four, defense. Four, four or five healthy guys uh, yes. on the field at the right. end of that game. So No, I think I'm, you saw Peter, I think you saw Buffalo completely alter its game plan because they knew they wouldn't be able to stop the Chiefs with that yes. that decimated defense. I think that's why they were more run heavy yes. than even they'd been late in the season, could tried to control the clock. Agree with you. This is a total different kettle of fish. And also we haven't seen the Ravens at full strength for a while, but it looks like they're a good chance to get Mark Andrews and Marlon Humphrey back for this game. Yeah, yeah. So I'm kind to, of ex- kind of excited to see what Lamar can do with with Mark Andrews back. Could be very exciting. Right. To me, the question is: um, Can the Chiefs generate consistent pressure on defense and manage to keep Lamar from being able to escape with twenty yards to run downfield? The, the Texans did a terrible job of that last week. Um, I don't know whether they'll spy, but I, you got to give Spags a little a little hope in Spags to come up with a, a a game plan that limits his rush lanes and forces their receivers to beat you. That's what I would be trying to do. And then, same question the other way: can can the Chiefs receivers get separation on a good Ravens secondary? And can they do it without dropping passes that Lamar puts right in their chests four or five times during the game? Very good point. So I think I mean, I, I, that, I, that has been a real problem. And Jordan, look, Ravens, Kansas City looked good in what they doing what they had to do last weekend. The Ravens given up six rushing touchdowns all year. So they're going to get the ball. They're going to keep the ball. They're going to move the ball. They're going to score with the ball. 
and they don't let you yeah, do no. it. I don't know. I don't know what else to say. No, this is a Mahomes, I, Kelsey, Rasheed Rice game. If they can get separation and he's just Superman, then they've got a shot. But otherwise, so, right. So this is not a very analytical thing to say, but I think it comes down to whether or not the Ravens can build a lead bigger than a Mahomes late touchdown by the end of the game. That's fair. <laughs> That's fair. Well, I think we're both sort of on an all over dog Super Bowl. Then Niners Ravens would be pretty cool. But you know what else? Wasn't so cool. Some of the names that got left off the MLB Hall of Fame list yesterday when they were announced. We'll be back to dissect that after this. Underdog. Underdog. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Underdog, underdog. We're back. And yesterday, Major League Baseball announced the three names that would be joining the Hall of Fame this summer. Joe Maurer, great catcher. Adrian Beltre, great third baseman. Todd Helton, great first baseman. Do we like these names? But more importantly, who was left off? And what is that triggering in Peter Keating right now? Well, Jordan, first of all, I'm glad to see Joe Maurer made it. So often people think of analytics as counting stats, you know, and they look at your gross totals and say the numbers fall short. So they think that analytically you're not, you know, Joe Maurer was a great player at the hardest position on the field for a significant amount of time. So let's just get that out of the way. Like worthy selection, Beltre, um, one of the greatest third basemen ever. Helton, we can, Helton, we can talk about. Um, But Jordan, Two of the greatest dozen baseball players, and that's being that's being kind of that's being kind of stingy, ever are still out there, and they're not going to make the Hall of Fame. Of course, I'm talking about Barry Bonds and A. Rod, and they are in life such overdog, overbearing, overdog, great athlete personalities that I don't even didn't even root for either one of them. But in this situation, they have become unjustly. Uh, overlooked and maltreated underdogs. Jordan, I spent years of my career covering steroids and scandals, investigating what was going on, trying to to figure out what's going on behind the scenes in baseball with performance enhancing drugs. I 
I considered steroid use a form of cheating, a bad form of cheating for a few reasons for a long time. It was against the rules, even if the rules hadn't been collectively bargained. It warped statistics, right? You know, in, 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 when you and I grew up, we, we could cite the statistics of 80s and 90s teams that look completely different, you know, from the numbers that backup shortstops were putting up around the year 2000, 2005. And also, I did wonder if it was bad for public health. I mean, there are some drugs that have passed into common uses that are okay, like marijuana. There are others that are not so okay, like cocaine. And I wondered if when you go into a gym, if everybody's sticking their asses with needles, maybe that wasn't a good thing. Well, how but, dare you besmirch the use of cocaine, Peter? What do you think gets me through the show? No, I'm kidding. But, but, but I, I want, well, can, I, can I hammer yeah. a point home really quick? I just want to, yep. for those of you out there who, uh, Peter's underselling it, okay? Peter, during the steroid era, nobody was better at covering that in, in, in bringing news to light than Peter Keating. He owned that beat along with Shauna Sale for us at ESPN, the magazine at the time. Um, Peter did great work. So that's actually why I want to talk about it on the show this week because Peter has a unique perspective compared to just baseball lifers or stats guys or whatever who just make the same case you've heard over and over. Peter lived the steroid crisis and he has insight into that that others don't. So, well, that's very, that's very nice of you to say, um, uh, but yeah, uh, but save this because it's not going to happen again. <laughs> think about, but think about how baseball responded to the steroid crisis, the leadership of baseball first during the McGuire Sosa home run chase, Bud Selig said, let's see how this plays out. Cause I think people have no idea how bad the labor wars were back in the seventies, the eighties, the nineties, a canceled season and world series. Um, Baseball was coming back because of these jolly guys hitting home runs. Then when the face of the home run surge became Barry Bonds instead of McGuire and Sosa, and the owners wanted to use drug testing in leverage in collective bargaining negotiations, then it became a situation where the, the leadership of baseball was like, we got to crack down on this. You know, they started to heal, feel heat from Congress, started to want to use this. And so- you know, they put together this half-assed Mitchell report, which was an investigation led by George Mitchell, a former senator who was part owner of the Red Sox, who found a couple of clubhouse sources and a couple of studies, some of which we published for the first time, and named a bunch of players. And that was supposed to be some kind of be-all and end-all, but it, it was not. They never really investigated it, okay? And they never really did the big thing that Selig promised that would have made a big difference, was to investigate how the use of steroids actually affected performance. You know, there were players whose home countries, uh, some of this stuff was legal. You could buy bowling off the shelf in the Dominican Republic, right? There were also a lot of players who were on the edge of major league careers who had every incentive to enhance their performance. Baseball never really did anything about either of those situations. You know, Bud Selig promised to have a blue ribbon commission or a blue ribbon medical team studying all this. Jordan, if I tell you right now, a guy's injecting himself with 100 milligrams of testosterone every month for six months, what will that do to his ability to hit a fastball? We still don't know. Right. So it's we're the left year with this, 2024, right? We're, so I mean, we're left I think with they, this uncertainty. They, right. Is what they you're saying. They could have offered players amnesty to come forward, say, here's what I did and when, and tried to figure out how it affected things or put them on the clean side of the ledger. But instead, we're left with this situation where sports writers are using their moral judgments about rendering verdicts on players' careers. So how do you parse what A-Rod, what Barry Bonds, what Roger Clemens did 
presumably pre-steroid versus post-steroid? When did they start? How much did it impact them? And then how do you reconcile that with, we know they used, but just because we don't have firm evidence on other people doesn't mean that they didn't in what was a pervasive clubhouse culture then, right? Right. So first of all, let's remember Bud Selig's now in the Hall of Fame. So right. the question so he is, oversaw this whole so, thing, so, and, and that's and, and okay. His, and his right. deputy is now the commissioner, right? right? So let's be clear that in a way that wasn't true 10, 15 years ago, maybe you don't have to do anything of the things you're just talking about. Maybe if we're going to reward everybody for and who ran baseball for letting this all happen, maybe you don't pass judgments, okay? that That is now an option, and you have to take that option seriously. I think... Statistically, what happened is over time, the relationship between the people who lead a league and the average players is always declining, right? There's no Wilt Chamberlain today because nobody could score 50 points a game today. What steroids did was it jackhammered open that gap. Barry Bonds exceeded the league average by more than anybody since Babe Ruth. So you have to take the air out of the very top level performances of that era and deflate them. And if guys are still Hall of Famers after you do that, then they should be in the Hall of Fame. Barry Bonds was probably a Hall of Famer before he started using steroids. A-Rod is probably a Hall of Famer if you let as much air out of every statistic that you want. I don't think Manny Ramirez, interesting case, but people are punishing him for with their Hall of Fame votes because they think he was a doofus and because suspensions for drug use ended his career. Right. But you're going to put him in, you're not going to put him on the Hall of Fame, but you're going to put David Ortiz in the Hall of Fame. So what you can't do is just allow the vagueness of the whole situation to make, to allow people to vote for who they like and not vote for people who they don't like. It's also a very strange bar because on the one hand, there's people who think that Hall of Fame should only be the best of the best n- names that are no brainers never make you doubt. And then you have guys like Harold Baines in, in the Hall of Fame. There's plenty of people from earlier eras who people don't realize just how not elite they were. And so now that we have better access and better understanding of current players and, and, and we're sort of like, well, that isn't, you know, that guy's not a Babe Ruth and that guy's not a Mickey Mantle. Doesn't mean they're not Hall of Fame worthy. I actually think some of the other candidates this year who didn't make it fit that, that bill, but. Well, the, look, Jordan, the Hall of Fame has been rewarding just above mediocre players since the 1940s. Right, that's People don't realize yeah. that. Now we have less excuse to do that. You're right. And what I would say is, like, you can make a list of the best players at a position, right? It'll go from the very best down to a Hall of Fame level, right? Mm-hmm. I think we should now only be admitting people to the Hall of Fame who drag the bar up. In other words, not anybody who's better than the worst Hall of Famer, right? But who actually is better than the average Hall of Famer at their position? So, right, so, so make- give me some names real quick, you know, before we, before we move on to yet another topic, guys who you were mean- left off yesterday, who should be in the hall of fame right now. And, and I've long said, by the way, if you want to handle the steroid users, put them in the hall of fame and put it on their plaque, say, you know, was suspended for steroid user, blah, blah, blah. Make it a, it's a part of baseball's history, but tell give me your solution here. Well, Who's you mean, in you, you, and how do you, you handle you, it? Well, I, I that's fine with me. I mean, give a, everybody should get a full accounting, a full and fair accounting of their career, right? So, uh, I mean, I think the whole process is, is farcical until Bonds and A-Rod go in. Then All right, but names, you got about things. a minute left, so hit me with who should be those in. Those are my, those, I'm, I'm saying, put Bonds them in and, and then you can talk about whoever you want. Well, the what about, key thing what about is, is, isn't Clemens in the same boat as, as Bonds and A-Rod? 
you know, these are three players that I just couldn't <laughs> root for my whole yeah. career. But yes, obviously, if in fact, look at Clemens' career before it takes off when he was around 40 years old. Before that, he's clearly a Hall of Famer in line with other Hall of Famers. Well, Take the, bu- the, the late bubble away. Clemens is obviously a Hall of Famer still. If you have a different opinion on this um, and just want to talk about steroids with Peter, you should definitely hit him up on, on Twitter uh, at Peter Keating NJ. That's NJ for New Jersey. Uh, cause Peter will talk to you forever about steroids. So, you know, well, tell I mean, Jordan, just, just, just to wrap this up. I mean, I, I don't, I am offended analytically and as a fan and as players of somebody who loves history, I don't like that baseball never cared enough about the actual history being made in front of our eyes to learn enough for us to make sense of it. You know, this is an era really without heroes, but now we have some unfortunate, unfortunately we have some dislikable underdogs as a result of it. Dislikable underdogs are not our usual kind of dogs. We prefer likable, sometimes even sad underdogs. And the Buffalo Bills lost again last week in painful fashion. And when you really start to go down the rabbit hole of Bills fandom, it's not a happy place to be. Um, So... (laughs) I was rooting for the Bills this past weekend. I have friends who are Bills fans. I enjoy their fan base. And I decided to look at what the most painful Bills losses of all time are. And just to tell you how ridiculous a list this is, you have to leave off three consecutive Super Bowl losses because they weren't (laughs) as crazy as the first. This is a franchise that this century has lost a pair of games on overtime walk-off special teams returns to the New York Jets. Those don't make the list. Okay? You need a this top is, 20 list for this, Jordan. This, this is a, a lot team of that had a, a, its best chance to make the Super Bowl in, in like 1980 and its quarterback broke its ankle, and that doesn't make the list. Right. So without so, so, further ado, and with right. some help from various lists on the internet, and I then I spoke to my... My good friend a, here, a Bills fan by the name of Mark, and, and I ran this by him, and I think I made him <laughs> cry. Um, let's go. Loss number five of the, the worst losses of the Bills era. We will call it a swift exit. That was last week's game against the Only Chiefs. number five. Yeah, exactly. We don't have to go too deep into it. The reason it's only number five is every Bills fan I've spoken to feels like even if Tyler Bass had made that field goal, they were gonna. They, I know someone who turned off the game because they knew Mahomes was gonna lead them down to a field goal. There was no way they were gonna keep the Chiefs from getting a field goal at the end. I will say that the if you're gonna be upset about something, don't be upset about the field goal. Be upset about the missed the drop by Stefan Diggs on that yeah. dime that Josh Allen threw, and then the the missed shot to the end zone that that they had when uh, the offensive lineman was backed into Josh Allen at the last second. So Peter, if that's the least of the five. Are you prepared for what's coming next? <laughs> I, I I don't know, but I'll tell you, you, a lot of a lot of fan bases argue about who's had it the worst, talk about worst records. This is the most heartbreak for sure. I mean, it's just, this, this is going to get yeah. sad. It's going to get even sadder. Yep. All right. Well, let's get sadder. Number four, the drop. January 6th, 1990. It's the divisional round. They're playing the Cleveland Browns. The Bills hasn't done anything. They're down 10 points with eight minutes to go. Score a touchdown. Missed the extra point. They're down 34-30 late in the game. Deep in Brown's territory. Nine seconds left. Jim Kelly lofts the ball toward the corner of the end zone to Ronnie Harmon, one of the great pass-catching running backs of all time, and he drops it. 
and the Bills don't go on. They would have played in the AFC Championship game. Alas, this game would have, I think, to lose on that drop pass would have been even worse if they hadn't then gone to four consecutive Super Bowls after. But if you talk to Bills <laughs> fans, especially those of a certain age who were kids when they watched that, yeah, it killed them. The good hands guy dropped the ball. Yep. That's the that's the crazy element of this. Yeah. Now we get serious. Number three, and I went. We went back and forth on three and two in some order, over and over. But number three is the Music City Miracle, January eighth, two thousand. The Bills took a 16-15 lead on a Steve Christie field goal against the Titans with 16 seconds left. Looked like they were on their way to the second round of the playoffs. And then they kicked it deep. And then Lorenzo Neal fielded it and handed it to Frank Wycheck, who threw it across the field. Some say it was a lateral. Some say it was a forward pass. Whatever you think, Kevin Dyson caught it. And 75 yards later, he had a touchdown. Kaboom. The Bills had a loss, and they wouldn't make the playoffs for the next 17 years. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> you know it's going to be bad news when your name's on the losing side of a game known as the Miracle. Yes. But <laughs> it was edged out by what we witnessed three years ago. Yes, 13 seconds. Overtime, Chiefs 42, Bills 36. You know the game. It was one of the great games I've ever seen in football. Four lead changes, 25 points in the final two minutes of regulation alone. Gabe Davis with four touchdowns, including what looked like the game winner with 13 seconds left to put the Bills up. And then 44 yards and two plays from Patrick Mahomes to set up the game-tying field goal. Chiefs win the coin toss in overtime, drive down the field, score a touchdown, usher in a rule change. That was a terrific Bills team. (laughs) Uh, I think yeah. there are, there's actually a way to measure this analytically, Jordan, which if you measure the change in win probability in a game from play to play to play and add all of those changes up, I'm pretty sure that game will be number one, at least in the playoffs in all of NFL history. Well, number one, it's not even number one for the Bills in terms of pain because nothing compares to wide right. Now, you the and I were Super celebrating. Played, yes, right? you and I yeah. were celebrating that game as Giants fans. But Giants 20, Bills 19, Scott Norwood misses a 47-yard field goal at the buzzer. You know the underlying numbers that he was poor on grass and outdoors on field goals of more than 40 yards all all season, that they sort of settled for that field goal at the end. I think people don't – I think Bills fans don't even really, despite the wide right and Ace Ventura and all this, you know, (laughs) there's – there's no, I don't think people really blame Norwood. I think the general consensus is they didn't get close enough on the final drive. You know, it was a great upset win for the Giants. Um, great final drive for them to take the lead. But that was just a terrific Bills team. And then the fact that that team would go on to win, to lose three more Super Bowls in a row, never get over the hump with just a great, a great cast. Peter, you and I talk about all the time what they did making four consecutive Super Bowls is much more impressive than a team winning a lone Super Bowl. But yes. I don't know if that eases the pain for Bills fans. So Bills fans, I don't think it is. our question is, did we do this right? Did we capture your internal struggle? Please let us know in the comments on Twitter. Jordan, we- quick shout out to my dog, Otis, O-T-T-I-S, for the for Otis Anderson guy yes. who probably should have been the MVP of that game. Right. But did we do this right? Any games you would add? Did we get the order wrong? Let us know in the comments. Let us know on Twitter. I'm at Jordan Brenner. We want to hear from you. We want to do justice to your pain. From the pain of the Bills, let's go to the pain of what is happening to the TCU women's basketball program. It's a pain of a different sort, 
but it's also led to an amazing story, one that we are adopting and rooting for. So Peter, if our listeners aren't familiar with this tale, why don't you break it down for them? What's what's going on with TCU? Jordan, this is fantastic. Uh, it's unbelievable. TCU women's basketball started the season 14-0. and They were ranked in the top 25 teams in the country. Then four players suffered injuries. Two more suffered season-ending injuries. They were down to six scholarship athletes last week. Jordan, TCU women's basketball had to hold open tryouts on campus to field a team because they had a forfeit. Two, they forfeited two games. Forfeited two games in the uh, in the Big 12 because of all these injuries. So guess what? They found some walk-ons, uh, including one volleyball player named Sarah Sylvester. And this is unbelievable. Last night, play. Uh, I'm sorry, Tuesday night, right? Playing those walk-ons as part of their squad, they won. They beat UCF 66 to 60. Now. I thought given all the attention, all the adrenaline, maybe they jumped out to a good start, but how how long could this, you know, the spirit of this all we're in it crazy situation together take you? They did. They jumped out to a 27-15 lead, then they fell back into a tie. It was at that point where they put in the volleyball player and she helped them and they scored the last six points of the game and they actually won. This leads me to two thoughts, Jordan. One is... It's pretty amazing that on campus, three young women who played basketball in high school, but weren't part of the team, could walk on, be part of the team and function. I mean, how much talent is there walking around the campus, right? They got three basketball players and a volleyball player who they integrated into the team within, what, 24, 48 hours. That's a little crazy. And um, and the other thought is, is that it wasn't just that adrenaline burst. It's actually really good team unity and togetherness and great coaching. Um, and they're able to put it together and, and become a viable team again in, in less than a week. What happened when you called the walk-on hotline or whatever it was? Uh, apparently, demand was so great, they did not respond. You know, I, 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 I tried to find out through the walk-on hotline what was going on, but never got a reply. So either they, they found who they needed really quickly or so many people tried out they couldn't get back to me this week. And remind me, how many like, actual healthy like, role, like, players who were in the rotation before all the injuries, how many do they have left? Because it's not like it's not like they're starting the walk-ons. Like they do have a core, right? Right, but they were down to six six players on the team. Um, two starters had season-ending injuries, and three other players were hurt. So these players that they brought on actually did play an important role. Yeah. So this is an incredible story. I don't know how anyone isn't rooting for this team to put it all together now. Shout out to Coach Mark Campbell. Shout out to Sarah Sylvester, who becomes the first woman ever to play both volleyball and basketball <laughs> uh, at TCU. And uh, this is we're adopting this team, Jordan. This is our first adopted dog of 2024. So we are all horned frogs um, on this show. All right. Well, that's uh, that does it for us, for the underdogs, for the ultimate underdogs, the TCU horned frogs. I'm Jordan Brenner. That's Peter Keating. And we will see you next week. And by then, we'll know who's in the Super Bowl. The Underdogs Podcast is a production of Meadowlark Media and the DraftKings Network. Our show is produced by Sarah McCrory. Our executive producer is Neely Lohman. Follow us on Twitter at Peter Keating NJ and at Jordan Brenner. Tell a friend and subscribe to the Underdogs Podcast anywhere you like to listen, and be sure to tune in again next week. 
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.